tonight's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 in the contemporary English version. The snake was sneakier than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day it came to the woman and asked, Did God tell you not to eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? The woman answered, God said we could eat treat from any tree in the garden except the one in the middle. He told us not to eat fruit from that tree or even touch it. If we do, we will die. No, you won't, the snake replied. God understands what will happen. On the day you eat fruit from that tree, you will see what you have done, and you will know the difference between right and wrong, just as God does. The woman stared at the fruit. It looked beautiful and tasty. She wanted the wisdom that it would give to her, and she ate some of the fruit. Her husband was there with her, so she gave some to him, and he ate it too. Right away, they saw what they had done, and they realized they were naked. Then they sewed fig leaves together to make something to cover themselves. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to thank all of you that prayed and then came and uh, uh, several of you came and supported. And, uh, we're a great presence today at uh, OBC. It was a wonderful afternoon together. And I got this great phone call a few minutes before. said, uh, uh, I am one of Pastor Arnold's armor bearers. I'm going to host you all day today. And uh, he came tonight. Brandon, stand up and uh, let's introduce yourself there. And we're glad you're here. Thank you. Brandon works with the youth at OBC as well in the college, I believe. So we're glad you're here. It was a delightful, delightful afternoon. They were very, very gracious and welcoming. I was reading a story this week uh, from the historian Eusebius. And Eusebius has some real wild stories from the earliest years of the church. And this one is from about the uh, uh, 4th century. And he was talking about things in the arena and this is a true story that happened when a bunch of Christians were rounded up and put to death for their faith in the, in the arena in Rome. Well, they didn't realize it, but they had rounded up two groups of feuding Christians. And they didn't understand how badly they hated each other. And so they tried to get these Christians to go into the uh, uh, arena and just fight the lions and die. But the Christians refused. They said, I am not going to be eaten by the same lion as that guy. True story. True story. And so they went to the other side of the arena to make sure that they would be eaten by a different lion. That was how much they hated their brother in Christ. There's stories like this all through the history of the church. And, and, and one of the things that we're asking this winter at All Souls is, we want to be passionate we want to hold on to truth. We don't want to always have to break fellowship when we disagree with each other. Uh, I shouldn't need a fresh lion to eat me. I mean, your lion should be good enough. You know, <laughs> we, could, we could share lions. You know, this is always so hard. I thought of it when Scott was doing his wonderful, wonderful presentation. The guy is so passionate, has a theology of the city that has driven him down here. He's living it out. It's beautiful. 
and probably offended a number of us that like to do burgers on our deck. Now, what am I going to do about that? Am I going to call them afterwards and say, hey, you need to tone down the burger on the deck thing. Uh, you know, we need it. We, we can serve God wherever. Well, maybe. Maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, but what if, what if it's just that Scott and I are in relationship and I can tell him about how long and hard my wife and I prayed about moving downtown, how the Lord said no. Wouldn't that be better than me just kind of saying, Scott doesn't like me living in the suburbs. See, we are the most passionate group of people. I love it about us. But with great passion comes a lot of sparks and rough edges and people who are very committed to things that you may not really agree with or understand. How do we somehow live together in, in oneness even when we're all passionate about different things? We have different theologies and important things. Well, this is the answer that we've been uh, kind of trying to explore, explore this winter. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. So, two main ideas in the statement. In this first part of the series, we're looking at the first idea. We ask our members to affirm the Nicene Creed. We ask our members to believe in the Nicene Creed. And we've been using this metaphor to talk about belief. We've been saying it's like changing scripts. We all have a story that we use to make sense of our lives. We all have a script we use that we think will make us safe and happy. We learn it from our culture. We learn it from our wounds. We, we learn it from uh, all sorts of things. And sooner or later in life, the script fails us. The strategy that we've been using to make ourselves secure and significant doesn't work anymore. Well, what do we do then? Well, Christ has invited us into a better story. He's invited us to stop being the author and director of our own play and to accept a role in his play. And we've talked about the play as coming in four acts. Uh, I don't know if we have that slide this week. I think we do, Bruce. Act one, uh, creation. Act two, fall. Act three, redemption. Act four, new creation. Dorothy Sayers put it like this, uh, the Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And we've said that believing is like wandering onto the play somewhere in the middle of the third act and improvising. And if you're going to do that well, you need to know the whole play. So that's kind of what we're working on here at this part of our story. Last week we looked at uh, Act 1, and we said that the Nicene Creed essentially summarizes the four acts of the play. And Act 1 is about God, the Creator. We saw how He, he is the all-powerful God who created the world. We saw how He is a Father God who loves His creation. And we said, when you affirm the Creed, one of the things you're saying is, I believe in God, the Creator. You're not saying you understand about how long it took or, or any of that. You're just saying, I believe God, the Creator. Now, all great stories have a problem. Donald Miller, 
uh, wrote this uh, excellent little book called How to Write a Story. It's a free ebook. If any of you are interested in storytelling or writing, you can get it online. And I, I think we might have put this quote up there, Bruce. Uh, it goes this. He, he says, most stories can be boiled down to this simple plot structure. A character has a problem, then meets a guide who gives them a plan and calls them to action. That action either results in a comedy or a tragedy. Now he says most stories kind of boil down to that. Not all, and, and if you're into literature at all, you know that the way people are writing stories now is very different than they have ever before. But uh, a character has a problem, then meets a guide who gives them a plan and calls them to action. That action either results in a comedy or a tragedy. Uh, the puppy in the Super Bowl ad. He has a problem. Um, he needs to find his way home. Uh, Frodo has to save Middle Earth. Rudy has to make the football team. Now, what is the great problem in the biblical story? Well, let's read a few more lines of the Creed. I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Act 1. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us. Now, the creed doesn't give a lot of lines to the second act. But the second act is definitely there with that little phrase, for our salvation, and the phrase crucified for us. Because, and the reason why they didn't give a lot of lines to it was was, there wasn't any controversy about it. Everybody kind of knew it and agreed on it. The problem in the biblical story is that we all need saving. That's the problem. Something has gone terribly wrong, and we need saving. Now, Act 2 is going to explain why. Now, as the curtain rises on Act 2, a snake slithers into the garden until it finds Eve. And you know, that's part of our story. It's something that we've got to just stop and, and, and talk about for just a moment. There's a snake in the garden. Later on, the Bible will call him all sorts of names, Lucifer, uh, Satan, the enemy. He's not God. He's a creation of God. He's rebelled against God. But he's there. And, you know, there's a balance that we have to face here because the Bible doesn't overly emphasize the snake. But the snake is a big part of the story. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, uh, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And he means the, the, the angels that fell with Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. 
I know people that blame everything on the devil. No, I'm not asking you to do that. But I think for most of us, our tendency is to just not really pay any attention to him at all and not have any real sense of the real risk of spiritual warfare. Uh, last Halloween, uh, the Pope gave a Vatican Mass, and he talked about spiritual warfare. He said, um, This generation has been led to believe that the devil is a myth, but the devil exists and we must fight him. So one of the things you might think of in this time when we're, we're saying, look, this is the core. These are the things that all Christians in all places and all times always believe. There's a lot of things outside of the core that are very important, but we can disagree on. This one's central. Uh, do you believe in a snake? Uh, is, is that part of kind of how you operate in the world is understanding that he's out there? That he's evil. I, I don't mean this the wrong way. The, the, more, the longer you spend in graduate school, the less you believe in the snake. I'm not sure why. It just seems like the smarter you get, the more degrees you get, the more everything becomes abstract and a theory, and, and you're always, well, I, you read everything with critical detachment, and, well, there's two sides of that, and it's all about hegemonic power structures anyway. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Before you know it, you don't believe in anything more sometimes. So the more I went along, I found myself kind of seeing the snake as kind of this vague construct, a mythological archetypal symbol and all that kind of yeah, 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 yeah. Then one day a friend called and said, um, my house is haunted. Would you come over and help? That's not a particular call I want any of you to make to me soon. Um, I did not have a course on haunted houses and seminary, uh, but got a friend, never do that kind of thing alone, got, got a friend, it was before the internet, so I couldn't Google haunted house, you know, <laughs> so, um, so go over to the house, and um, I, I didn't know what to do, so I began to pray, and we sat down in the center of, of the, the living room, as soon as we started to pray, this clock uh, started to gong ten times, bang, 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 which I thought, that's what clocks are supposed to do. The couple just looks horrified. I said, what's wrong? They said, the clock hasn't worked in 10 years. And we felt a dark presence in the house. Well, uh, I ran. No, I didn't run. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to do either. No. I... Uh, I prayed, and I'm, I don't want to come off like some great exorcist. This is just part of my story, because I'm not, and I just prefer never do this again. So I said, Lord, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. What's going on? And I, and I sensed him say, go look at the picture in the woman's bedroom. And so we go into the woman's bedroom. There's a picture of a guy in a sailor hat. And I said, ma'am, who is this? And, and, and she said, it's my dad. He passed away 20 years ago, or 10 years ago. And then um, after a little bit more prayer, I was led to ask her, um, is he the ghost? And, and she, she said, yeah. She said, many nights he'll come up the stairs and uh, visit me. And he's really my friend. I love him a lot, and I couldn't let him go. And it's just kind of how he guides me and comforts me. And, and, of course, we were able to explain that that's not your dad, <laughs> and he's not your friend, and all sorts of chaos was going on in their family because it was really a, a wicked spirit. So the Lord used that in my life 
just to remind me that Satan is not a construct or an archetypal mythological blah, 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 but he's a snake and he's in the garden. And we have to fight him because he fights us. And what we see here is his first assault on human beings. He says, did God not tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, in Act 1, you remember from last week, God had just given one simple law, one law. There's one tree, middle of the garden, don't do that one. Everything else is yours. The snake comes and challenges that. And you know, this is the first moment in the history of the world that anyone experiences anxiety. Because up till now, in Act 1, remember we talked about being they were in right relationship with God, they trusted Him, they loved Him, they worshipped Him, they walked with Him. It never occurred to anybody that He might not be trustworthy. And what I find is so interesting about what's happening here is that the snake is introducing anxiety into Eve. He is, he, he is getting her to doubt and question God's goodness for the first time in the history of the world. Did he, did he really say that? You know he's the man, don't you? You, you, you know, he, he, he really doesn't have your best interest in mind. There's a big old world out there, sister. And you're just kind of hanging around the garden park. Isn't this God and garden thing getting kind of old? Let's go. Well, Eve is left asking some good questions. Am I alone in the world? Is anybody going to protect me? Well, the snake's kind of done his work. And, and, and notice how he's done it. He, he, admittedly, there are times when Satan can really come after you in a very visible way. I mentioned there were two stories where I encountered this in my whole life, and I hope they're over and I never encountered again. The other one was on Easter Sunday, 1993. A lady who'd been into some really heavy satanic stuff comes into our worship service, and right in the middle of the praise set, uh, a demonic spirit manifests all over her. She starts screaming and flying around the floor, and it was just terrifying, and we didn't know what to do with it, and uh, make a long story short, we shut the service down early. We, we took her. We went to a, a, a room. We had a bunch of people praying for her. We were there 36 hours. People were bringing in food. It was totally exhausting. Uh, this 110-pound woman threw three of us across the room. Uh, when people say, I'm not sure I believe in Satan, I, I just remember that event. He, 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 yeah, I do. So I'd almost rather handle that than what he usually does to me. Because, you know, when, when the room temperature is dropping and people are screaming and vomiting and throwing you across the room, you know something's going on. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box, but you, you can figure out this is, this is uh, you know, not Mayberry. So, <laughs> but that's not how he usually assaults me. Or you, I don't think. You know what he does? He has a little conversation in my head. 
introducing a few ideas, a few subtle ideas that make me question whether I can really trust in God, whether there isn't something more that I ought to be experiencing, whether God is sort of stifling my development. And it's all very subtle. It's all very subtle. You know, I think when I was, when I was younger, I thought I could identify temptation because you know, maybe Satan would, would speak in his Darth Vader voice, you know. Or that, you know those truck, do they still do those crazy things, you know, the, the truck pulling thing. My son used to love to go to these at the, at the, at the theater or the, the basketball stadium. And there's some guy, I don't know where he gets the voice, but it's this real deep, power, hundy, 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 come destroy. Oh, my son would say, Dad, can we go? But, but So I would, I would thought, that when Satan was going to tempt me, it would be, No, dog, dog, look at that woman! You know what it sounds like? It sounds like me. It sounds like me. It's very, very subtle and quiet, and it's my own voice. You know, so Valentine's Day is coming up. And maybe you're single. And so the snake says, Hey, I notice you're alone again this Valentine's Day. How is this holding out for a godly man going for you? Sometimes he'll sneak into the bed of an aging saint. Often in the middle of the night, often about three in the morning, and and the snake will say, it's been some long, dark days, haven't they? By the way, did you read the obituary? Did did you see that, that, that she'd passed away? Well, a lot of your friends are passing away these days, aren't they? Huh. Well, at least, at least you can count on heaven, you think? Can you really? Well, you're about to find out. The snake just sneaks in there with his voice and plants these doubts. It's, it's brutal. It's, it's wicked. You, you get in a fight with your wife and you're lying in bed thinking about it and The next thing you know, this voice says, uh, God wasn't really there for you when your mom and dad divorced, was he? Huh, wonder wonder if he'll be there for you now. And before you know it, this fire of anxiety starts. Um, It's so subtle. Do Do you know, can you tell the difference? between the thoughts that come from truth and and from the spirit and from reason and that are from God and they lead you into health and wholeness and the thoughts that lead you into anxiety and dangerous pattern. Can you tell? You know, I've told you when I I was 40, I I, I got this IBS. Um, It really messed up my stomach and couldn't eat anything for a while. It was very uncomfortable and... I just couldn't get on top of it. Finally, once went to a, a therapist, and, and she helped me, and, and, and she started to identify all the ways I was believing lies. 
And she actually had me take out a journal and start to write down. And, I, and usually it was 3 in the morning, go downstairs, I feel anxious about this. And, and what, are the, what are you thinking about that? And then as I'd write it down, I'd realize I wasn't, I wasn't believing God. I was listening to the snake. Anxiety comes from believing lies. Often. Not always. I know there's chemical and all that, but I'm saying often it comes from not believing the truth. You know, and it seems like even when things are going well, you get hit with it. It was a very sweet, I thought, time over at OBC today. Just the people were so gracious and felt like the God was there and we built some good friendships. And, and honestly, I, think, I don't know why. I think it was because of the, just the, the, the way the congregation worshipped and responded. I was entirely different than I ever am with you. I didn't recognize myself. <laughs> and so afterward, I thought, I kind of felt like I was fake. So I went over to the park um, before I came over here, and I just took a little walk around. And, and I kept going down this road of thinking, well, why aren't you that way with your own people? You're, you're, you're fake. You're one way here and one way over there. And I was kind of tired. And I started to kind of wrestle with this and go, God, why did you do that? And then, then I was talking with, a, with a Hannah Martin about it earlier before service, and she read 1 Corinthians 9 to me about how Paul, when he would minister to the Greeks, would minister one way, and when he ministered to the Jews, he'd minister to the other way, and he was always about whatever context he was in, but he was always trying to preach the gospel. And she said, I don't think you're fake. I think you were just trying to be sensitive to the Spirit. So, do you see how a moment when, when I should have been tasting a real joy of a beautiful uh, afternoon in worship, I, I had gone back into anxiety because I was listening to the snake. Well, you, you know what happens in the story. We've always, always read it. I'll just read a little bit more. The woman tries to correct the snake. The snake says, she says, you know, God said, we'd die if we do that. The snake says, oh, no, you won't. God understands what will happen on the day you eat. You'll see what you've done. You'll know the difference between right and wrong, just as God does. The woman stared at the fruit. It looked beautiful and tasty. She wanted the wisdom that would give her, and she ate some of the fruit. So it's this one-two punch. He exploits her anxiety. He stirs up her anxiety, and then he exploits it. You can't trust God. Let me give you some tasty fruit over here. That's where you'll find life. He still uses that today. He's all about making us dissatisfied with our life with God. He's all about making us question whether God is good and enough. And then saying, and by the way, have you thought of this? You know, take for example, uh, let's say you're sitting home some Saturday night and you're kind of lonely and you're just really feeling a need to connect with some friends. And So what do you do? You go on Facebook. And it feels really good at first. There's this whole world out there. 
And then you, you see another friend's got engaged. You know, they've got the, the rock out there, you know, and they're showing you all that. You see a uh, son's a co-worker of a son just graduated from Harvard MBA. And, uh, you know, everybody's putting all their best stuff on there. And so a half an hour after you've been on Facebook, you are feeling alone, isolated, and like a total loser. And, of course, I don't put on Facebook that I struggle with anxiety. I don't put on Facebook that I'm in a bad mood. Whenever I post something, it's because I did something good, like got an article published. (laughs) Well, if everybody is posting their best stuff, well, how are you supposed to feel when you're having a kind of a lonely night with a pizza box (laughs) and, and all you're seeing is a highlight reel of the rest of the world that you're not in? It's the snake. I mean, there's good things about Facebook, too. Uh, Scott, well, <laughs> you and I all have, I've just done it, too. See, I just offended half the congregation. So be merciful with it. Well, the prophets called this idolatry. Idolatry is seeking security, significance apart from God. Jeremiah put it like this. He said, God says to Jeremiah, you, my people, have sinned in two ways. You've rejected me. The source of life-giving water. You've tried to collect water in cracking and leaking pits dug in the ground. It's it's, it's such a powerful image. It's the core, really, of of biblical faith. God says, I'm living water. I'm enough. I'm everything that you need. I've provided for you. I've loved you. Every need you have, you can find in me. Why is it that you skip me and go drink from mud puddles? And then wonder why you're sick. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Today we have another name for idolatry. It's, we call it addiction. A psychologist Gerald May put it like this. He said, after 20 years of listening to the yearnings of people's hearts, I'm convinced that all human beings have an inborn desire for God. Whether we're consciously religious or not, this desire is our deepest longing It gives us meaning. It's a hunger to love, to be loved. But something gets in the way. Our desires are captured and we give ourselves over to things that in our deepest honesty we really don't want. Addiction turns us away from love. Addiction attaches desire, bonds and enslaves the energy of desire to certain specific behaviors, things or people. Addiction is the most powerful psychic enemy of humanity's desire for God. There's just so much tasty fruit out there. It's so easy to turn to it to satisfy our anxiety. We all know this. We can be addicted to a lot of things. You know, we can be addicted to drugs and beer. You can be addicted to, uh, to, to working and, and education. You can be addicted to groups that help you overcome addiction. One of the things I think I see the most is addiction to other people. There's just something in the human heart that wants us to make an idol out of our wife or an idol out of our best friend or an idol out of a powerful mentor figure. I heard it described like this. We give others the power to redeem or destroy us. Have you done that? Is there, is there somebody in your world who has the power to redeem or destroy you? 
No human being is supposed to have that kind of power. Here's one way you can tell. Can you be happy if they're not? Can you handle it if they're upset with you? That's a form of addiction. Eve is the world's first addict. Well, then there's this line after she eats the fruit. Her husband was there with her, so she gave some to him, and he ate it too. That is such a pathetic sentence. You know, the silence of Adam is deafening. You remember from Act 1, they were supposed to be in this together. They were supposed to take dominion together. They were supposed to, you know, build the kingdom of God together. And something's happened. And at this point, this woman is fighting the world's first epic battle with Satan. And the guy mails it in. He's a total no-show. He's on the Barca lounge or eating chips or something. I mean, he just does not engage her at all. He's a patron saint of passivity. I think one of the things we learned from this is we have got to fight for each other in this thing. Husbands need to fight for wives. Wives need to fight for husbands. Brothers need to fight for brothers. Sisters need to fight for sisters. We've got to fight for each other in this thing. We can't just passively watch someone go under. We need to do what Hannah did for me this afternoon. Say, you know, actually, Pastor, she didn't call me Pastor. Nobody calls me Pastor. People at other churches call me Pastor. She said, actually, Doug, I think you're believing a lie. She was fighting for me. That's what Adam didn't do. So they lose. Right away they saw what they'd done. They realized that they were naked. Then they sewed fig leaves together to make something to cover themselves. And you probably know the rest of the story. They start to fight with each other. They get estranged from God. Before you know it, the shalom they enjoyed in Act 1 is totally shattered. Their relationships are broken, both vertically and horizontally. And that really is what happens when the snake gets his way. That's always his goal. Remember, we're created in the image of a Trinitarian God. Therefore, the serpent's ultimate goal is to break apart relationships. Whenever you see that happening, in your small group, in your marriage, in your home, on your floor at work, there's a snake in the garden. It's not just you. That's what he lives for. I was talking with a friend a while back who was concerned that he was drinking too much. And finally, he went to see a psychologist. And he asked the guy, you know, do you think I'm addicted to drinking? And the psychologist didn't ask him anything that he thought he was going to ask him. He asked him one basic question. He said, is your relationship with alcohol affecting your relationships with others? He said, that's, that's really... The first thing I want to know to see if if you're addicted to this substance is how is it affecting your relationships? Because when we move away from dependence upon God and being rightly related to Him and trusting in Him and we move out into idolatrous ways of finding life apart from God, inevitably it will play out in our relationships. So Donald Miller again. I love that definition of a good story. A character has a problem that meets a guide who gives them a plan and calls them to action. 
that action either results in a comedy or a tragedy. And Act 2 introduces us to the central problem of our story. We need saving. Later in the play, Paul will come on stage. He'll encourage us to read the tragic story of Adam and Eve's fall from grace as our own story too. Uh, the fall of Adam is, is the fall of us all. You don't have to get too far into the details of that. People disagree on how they interpret all the details of that. Every Christian would say, I'm Adam. I'm Eve. I know what it's like to be deceived by the snake. I know what it's like to find life apart from God. G.K. Chesterton, the, uh, the great Catholic thinker in the early 20th century, uh, was a part of this contest. A newspaper sent out uh, questionnaires to great British authors and said, could you write an essay on what you think is wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote back a brief letter. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> I think that's what we're saying. Every day the snake slithers into the garden of our hearts and stokes the fires of our anxiety. Every day his oily voice mingles with our own and questions the trustworthiness of God. Every day he puts a basket of fresh forbidden fruit before us, seducing us into believing that if we had one bite, we'd be safe and happy. Every day the accuser of the brethren is quick to shame us after we take the bite. Every day we experience the shattering of shalom. So when we say the creed, And we say, I believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, that he came down from heaven for our salvation. We are agreeing that the problem in the world is me. How will God save us? Looks like we need a guide. Let's pray.